0: Hello fellow movie lovers and welcome to Cult Fiction, a podcast where we examine Hollywood's red-headed stepchildren. As a red-headed stepchild myself, I'm Stephanie Johnson.
1: And I'm Andy Bowell, And today we are pulling back Hollywood's Crypt to review John G. Avildsen's 1984 seminal teen movie sports classic, The Karate Kid.
0: The Rocky Kid.
1: The Rocky Kid. (laughs) Because this movie is Rocky for all intents and purposes. And, like, neither of us are huge Rocky fans, but I didn't realize this is directed by the same guy who directed Rocky.
0: It reminds me of when you have, like, Clue, and then you have Clue Jr. That's, like, for three year olds. Yes. And it's the same concept of the game. Oh,
1: yeah, because this is incredibly that, but. Movie. Movie. Yeah, exactly. For Rocky.
0: <laughs> because you have the main character being very New York, New Jersey. He realizes that he's an underdog in some fashion. I don't think Rocky relocates.
1: Well, Rocky doesn't relocate, but you're uh, Keenan on Underdog, this is about like an inner city white person taking on a physically violent sport and their main thing being maybe they're not the best, but they've got the most heart (laughs) Yeah, and succeeding against somebody who is objectively better in every like way.
0: And he's got a pretty girl and an old man to help
1: him through. Yeah. And like a a tragic parental figure.
0: Well, I don't think the mom's that tragic. She's just a little down on her luck and needs some help about things.
1: So 80s version of tragic.
0: Oh, yeah, you know what? Fair enough, actually. <laughs> um, but can we start off the bat? I'm just going to get into it, Andy. I'm going to fight you on this. This isn't cult.
1: And, okay, yeah. So I honestly have to, we're going to talk this through, but this is less of an argument than a concession point. So, yeah, to go through it, first of all, this is an incredibly storied franchise there are five karate kid films one two three the one with hillary swank and the remake (laughs) there is a tv show cobra kai on which started on youtube and is now on netflix and i've heard really great things about but we have not seen but the point is like karate kid had a big enough deal where 40 years later hey it's a karate kid show but they're all old now Oh, no. Is selling like hotcakes.
0: Well, in the same way that Saved by the Bell, but they're all old now. Mm-hmm. And any piece of nostalgic media we can scrape money off the tongue of, we're yes. going to redo because we're out of ideas for reasons. Well,
1: because Stranger Things was popular, so now we're having an 80s nostalgic renaissance. Uh. At least that's what I attribute to. Okay, sure. Um, but yeah, huge legacy. Um, box office-wise, this was an incredible super hit, like, in theaters. I can't even make the thing of, oh, well, technically it didn't make triple, so it's technically not a hit. No, this made ten times its budget.
0: Yeah. I mean, okay, oh. for the record, it is quotable. Like, everyone yeah. knows – There are other quotes, but everyone knows wax on, wax off.
1: Yes. I would argue there are people who know that quote who don't know it's from Karate Kid.
0: Right, exactly. Like, kind of in the same vein that everyone knows Star Wars quotes, but not everyone has seen Star Wars.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, It's that everyone has foundational memories of this movie.
1: Yep. Like, if you're a millennial white boy, you absolutely <laughs> tried to learn the crane kick, the most deadly and effective karate move ever created. Only no, it's not. <laughs> it's a horrible karate move.
0: <laughs> yeah, so I could I would say that it is cool. Except it's a big hit and it made Except it's a big hit and it made so much money.
1: Right. It has a outstanding legacy.
0: Sure. So, like, why is it on our list?
1: I think because I confused Legacy with cultness.
0: Oh, Andrew.
1: Well, I mean, and I've made the debate for it before, and I'm sure there have been other films that, like, I know there have been other films that we could make an argument about, but I really have to say I think this is the most undisputable non-cult film this is the first one i i i feel like there have been a couple where we've like weighed down the hammer and go no this is not cult but by technicality no this is blatantly not cult but we watched it so let's go ahead and talk about it
0: (laughs) fair enough where would Lee like to start well in
1: case you missed the film and in case you've somehow never seen the karate kid which I assume means you are under the age of 20, in which case, hello, thank you for joining and listening to our show.
0: Hello, youth babies. Hello, youth
1: baby. The Karate Kid is about a young man who moves from New Jersey to California and instantly upsets the wrong crowd by dating a pretty girl and then must defend his manhood and honor in a karate match. Good thing he has Mr. Miyagi, the neighborhood handyman, who is also like a karate master, to teach him the fundamentals.
0: That's pretty accurate.
1: Yeah, and, and so that gets in like speaking of legacy. Okay, this is such an amalgamation, or not an amalgamation, I suppose this is such a progenitor of so many core 80s tropes like this is the kid who moves from one city to another city and has massive culture shock, (laughs) which is a thing that Disney would dine out on as a plot device for the next 20 years in Disney original films. This is a film where the magical person of color teaches an essential skill. And because they are the magical person of color, it turns out to be like the thing this created the I'm going to take you down at the at the Tri-City blank competition. And that's where we're going to have our big climax. Like, that's a thing that that movies of this nature then like took as like, yes, our our underdog protagonist has to defeat the the, the Team Iceland at the Tri-City hockey competition.
0: OK. There, but for the grace of 10 years, Karate Kid would have been a decom movie.
1: Yes, absolutely. I think the first thing you said to me when we tried to find this is, well, it's on Disney Plus, isn't it? It's It's Disney, and it's not.
0: It's not, and it's so mystifying to me that it's not. And I still can't understand that it's not a Disney movie.
1: And and thematically, it feels like it's a Disney movie. And again, I I think probably why that is, is like when we were growing up, Disney just copy pasted this plot and changed karate to surfing and uh, California and New Jersey to Hawaii and Cincinnati
0: Mm, though, you know who else did it that wasn't Disney? What was that? Lost Boys. Also, this same exact movie. Yeah. Young teenager moves with mom to other city. And except of karate, we have...
1: It's the Tri-City Vampire Slaying Tournament. <laughs> oh, that's that's a coffee mug right there. <laughs> Buffy Summers owns it. Absolutely. Well, and so, like, so so this came out the same year as Footloose. Yeah. Which is one of your husband's favorite core memory films. And that is another thing of Guy moves from the city to the country and replace karate with dancing.
0: What is it with all of these moms moving their one son, one or two sons across the country? Like, do they have a support group with each other where they meet every couple of weeks and be like, my kid got really good at karate overnight. My kid has fallen in with the wrong crowd and I think they're vampires.
1: That's a really good skit. Like, that's a better than <laughs> SNL quality sketch is the 80s sports mom support group. Perfect. Love it. Um, But before we move on, there is one other film that I specifically didn't um, put in my notes that I, I think this is like intrinsically comparable to. It's something we've watched. I think this is the boy version of Pretty in Pink.
0: No one moves. No one moves in Pretty in Pink.
1: No one moves in Pretty in Pink, but we have a foundational 80s film about an outcast who is in love with the popular person at school and has a tragic single parent figure.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: If if, 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 uh, if the fashion, uh, you're, you probably remember the name, if the person who runs the fashion store in Pretty in Pink was a person of color, you could make a one-to-one comparison with Miyagi.
0: Yeah, but she doesn't get good at anything.
1: She gets good at being true to herself. (laughs) Which really is the point of Karate Kid as well.
0: Get out of this house.
1: (laughs) What are you here for, old man? Come ask, leave boy alone. What's the matter? The boy can't take care of his own problems? One to one problem, yes.
0: Five to one problem. Too much ask anyone.
1: Being true to yourself and being peak toxic masculine
0: yeah yeah this movie it started and i was like oh this is a really good study and how you know to defeat toxic masculinity you have to take on some really traditionally feminine roles so like mr miyagi for the first half of the movie is incredibly untoxic. Yeah. And then in the last half of the movie, the or last half hour of the movie, the movie completely turns
1: takes a violent left turn into misogyny.
0: <laughs> Even Mr. Miyagi at one point goes, "No, you're not hitting me right. You're hitting like a girl. What yeah. are you, a girl?" And I was like, "Where the fuck is this coming from?"
1: And yeah, like that is the question and I don't think there's a good answer. It, it it just happens. That mo that moment unlocks the film to then like then Willie Zabka and the other like tough karate youths call him a girl and, and question his masculinity. Mm-hmm. And like somebody gives Elizabeth Shue shit for being somewhere she's not supposed to be because she's a girl. Mm-hmm. And, like, the crux of the movie, the climax of the movie, to remind people, one of the evil karate youths cheats and, like, kicks Danny Russo in a way that, like, nearly breaks his leg. And he's crying in the back, and the doctor who's examining him is like, like, yeah, you're not medically fit to do this, so the bad guy, Johnny, is going to win the championship. And with tears in his eyes, surrounded by his friends and family, Danny is like, no, please let me fight. I am not going to be complete as a human being unless I fight in this battle. (laughs) And then is rewarded for it.
0: Yeah, it started with some really lovely tones of, you know, he learns gardening, he learns patience, he learns balance. And then all of a sudden it just twists into, I have to fight to prove myself.
1: Which is so interesting considering this came from the guy who directed Rocky. Mm -hmm. Because the whole point of the ending of Rocky is that he is unable to defeat Apollo. But he's so damn persistent and he has so much heart that like, It doesn't matter. So the core theme of Rocky, the original one at least, is that it doesn't matter who wins. But the core thing in the Karate Kid is, no, I have to win or else I am not complete as a human being.
0: And I think with better writing, it could have come across so much more clearly of, I want to try. I have to try. Sure. Because then it's a different conversation entirely. But I think he does say, I have to beat him. Yeah. I have to beat him. And then it just becomes a whole other thing.
1: It becomes a whole other thing and then slam cut the movie ends. Like, it is insane.
0: <laughs> I want to talk about that later.
1: Okay. Well, before we talk about that, um, let's talk about Pat Morita a little bit. Because I, I think it's, you have to.
0: His whole thing. His accent is problematic as fuck.
1: Also fake. Because Pat Morita was a, like, American-born, Japanese-American person who put on the accent for the movie.
0: Well, and I checked and I watched interviews with him because I was like, I don't want to be that uninformed white person on this podcast. And no, that's not his voice
1: at all. And, And I never knew this, but, like, Pat Morita had a long and storied career being on a bunch of 70s sitcoms as like asian american characters who spoke normal so it truly and and the the craziest thing is like i don't think they make it clear whether or not he's a first or second generation uh, japanese american but he is a a us vet mm-hmm. in the movie mr miyagi served overseas in world war 2 it's like the stunning twist
0: mhm I think he absolutely I think they casually mentioned that he and his wife came over to America together.
1: Right. Okay, so yes, they do address that then.
0: But it's it's blink and you'll miss it mention and there's also there's just a lot of ingrained attempts at like oh this is how we don't treat racism that makes it more racist.
1: Yes there are two kinds of racism in the Karate Kid. There is the overt textualized racism to send a message. Like when there's a bunch of drunk white men hanging on Mr. Miyagi's car who like call him slurs. And it's like, okay, this is a teaching moment. Mm
0: -hmm. This is
1: about teaching how to be better than that sort of thing. But then there's also the indirect, baked-in racism that because it's indirect, it's never, like, properly addressed and just was shown to the youth of America of, like, yeah, this is how Japanese people talk and they know the way of the warrior and can teach you the fundamentals of martial arts through bonsai.
0: Yeah, and it's also, you know, one of the, the teaching moments that they try to have is that they have Danny um, mispronounce Mr. Miyagi's name and Mr. Miyagi corrects him, but it takes Danny like three or four times. Right. And it's like, oh, this is, ooh. And ooh. I, it, it
1: feels like they only set that up to then pay off the moment in the end where Miyagi is correcting his name to the person writing it down so that he can steal a black belt to give to Danny. Which isn't a great look either. (laughs) Which isn't a great look. And, like, that one gets complicated because, like, there's the whole thing of, like, oh, real karate is not based off a belt. It's just a thing you know. So... Why are we perpetuating this weird ranking system when, like, my real true way of karate has nothing to do with that? And it's like, what do we do with that? What do we do with Keese's dojo? What do we do with the, like, idea of a white man running a prominent karate dojo? Is that problematic? Is it problematic to call that problematic? Because like, who says you have to be a, an Asian person to do karate? This this gets this turns into a very big snowball. What I do think can be more simply uh, stated is, I think it's fair to say that for a certain generation. Pat Morita then became the single most prominent Asian American actor mm,
0: mm-hmm.
1: in the country.
0: Not George Takei.
1: Well, I, I would say he took it from George Takei. Okay. Because Star Trek came out first, and that sure. was you know that was the whole big thing in the '70s, and I would argue that like George Takei is the most prominent Japanese actor working in America. And then in 1984, Pat Morita takes that mantle from him for an entire new generation of kids, Mm -hmm. which again makes the fact that he puts on an accent really bad.
0: Yeah. Well, and I will say, so some of it is that, you know, he has the accent, but a lot of it's got to be on the writer because that's not, you're not writing lines that someone is using an accent for the right. way that the lines are written is problematic because they're in very a very broken syntax yeah so it's it's presumed oh this type of character would have this type of accent so it's also kind of on the writer
1: it's kind of on the writer it gets a little muddy to learn that pat morita based his entire character on a real person named fumio demura who was a real life karate master and people say is the real life Mr. Miyagi. Mm. He was somebody who pioneered his own style of karate in Japan, brought it to America. I, I just looked it up. The film is written by a guy named Robert Mark Kanan, who is a Caucasian looking person, but like the fifth picture on Google is him and Fumio DeMora, both wearing uh, geese and posing in a karate manner. And it's just, it is it, it is challenging to parse what is a love letter and a respectful gesture to this real person for this real thing and what is stereotypical. And what started as the first thing and then became the second. Sergeant Miyagi, yes, sir report to kill mini
0: You know what's what else is difficult to parse out? What? What the fuck is a karate manner?
1: <laughs> Posing in like a battle stance with your arms splayed in a in a in a way that you know what fine. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Victory is mine. I shall win the dojo. You're
1: going to win the Tri-City Call Out a Caucasian Guy's Bullshit competition.
0: Oh, my God. Is that a competition? I want to be in it. Fair enough.
1: So the other thing I want to talk about before we move on with Pat Morita is Pat Morita's life bears commentary because it's insane. Okay. Pat Morita was born in 1932 in Isleton California. So he is a second generation Japanese American citizen. He had spinal tuberculosis as a child, which left him bedridden. And he was like not able to move. He had to be in a full body cast for huge chunks of his childhood. Gets spinal tuberculosis cured and then is immediately sent to a Japanese internment camp in Arizona. So it's like, welcome, kid, you're out of the hospital. Time to go to the American concentration camp. Did not serve in World War II, unlike the character, because, again, he was like a teenager. Um, But instead, uh, worked in what he called a Chinese restaurant in the black part of town, serving exclusively to Filipino people. Which is a a, a mix. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Went on to have like this great career at Lockheed, which I don't say like Lockheed is great. Lockheed, the weapons manufacturer. But to say that like he had a prominent career with the company Lockheed, had an existential crisis, gave that up, turned to comedy, and then became an actor. So like, holy shit, Pat Morita's life is, is the point of all of this. It's definitely a few more bullet points than, oh, yeah, he lived in California and he got into acting and then he was an actor.
0: That's fascinating to me. Interesting. Yeah. So it's almost like he's truly qualified to comment on the art of life.
1: I mean, I certainly think so.
0: (laughs) That's so fascinating to me.
1: I brought up Japanese internment Mm -hmm. and I want to turn into that. Because while we watched the film, I didn't get. I had forgotten. Mm-hmm. I had forgotten that scene because it's the famous scene where Miyagi is getting drunk and like mourning the anniversary of his wife's death, and Danny walks in on him and sees him in that way. I remembered the part where he got drunk and was mourning his dead wife. I completely forgot the part where they say, yeah, she's dead because she was sent to a Japanese internment camp where there was no doctor when she gave birth to their son. Mm
0: -hmm. And
1: I know that also threw you through a loop.
0: Well, I didn't expect this child's movie to have layers. (laughs) Sure. I didn't expect like, hey, let's deal with the complicated uh, feelings and emotions that arise around Japanese internment camps. I didn't expect I keep almost saying a Disney movie. I didn't expect a child's movie to deal with that period of time.
1: Right. And, and so for all of the problematicness that one can and rightfully should apply, I think Karate Kid and the writers and everybody involved in the production deserve a lot of credit for taking that step, that unnecessary debatably step, because you can cut that out of the movie and it really doesn't, Subtract anything except for like the monumental importance of having the conversation about it. Mm-hmm. But I would argue the American internment of Japanese citizens is a conversation that we are barely, barely able to start having in 2022. So to be pushing that and saying, no, this is something that needs to be talked about and shown for the awful thing that it is in 1984, I hold a huge amount of credit for that. Mm -hmm. Famously found out from just reading IMDb, that scene almost was like cut from the film, Mm -hmm. but the uh, director fought to keep it in. For reasons of it being culturally important, but also he was basically like, This will win Pat Morita an Oscar. Did he? I believe so.
0: Well, then it's doubly not
1: called. <laughs> I know, now. right? I forgot about that. He was nominated for an Oscar pretty much for that scene.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, that makes sense. It's also, he has a lot to go on. Yeah. And I can't imagine being in in my brush with theater. I was always really scared by the Method kids because they way overcommitted. I can't imagine actually having Method to pull from.
1: Especially for something so traumatic. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, they, you know, they, they change a couple of things. Technically, I think they say Miyagi never was in an internment camp. He was busy fighting overseas and his wife and son died in an internment camp. But, yeah, you're still able to pull from your own childhood memories of being sent to Gila River, Arizona, when you're from California, and having to live a couple of years in an internment camp. It's awful. feels not even climactic enough to just say it's awful. It's so awful, you know?
0: Mm Mm-hmm.
1: So, to pivot,
0: I was going to say, so how are you going to come out of this?
1: Well, let's talk about Danny LaRusso, the Jersey boy. Hey!
0: I feel very weird talking about this right after we were talking about Japanese internment, but. Um,
1: if we were able to make light of the episode we did about the movie about the Armenian Genocide.
0: You know what? Fair. <laughs> Do I have a thing for surly people from Jersey?
1: yes because
0: i was thinking okay so you know my husband is from jersey but other fictional crushes i have like just from gilmore girls is like from new york and he's like a punk ass kid and he has a leather jacket and he walks around town and realizes that there's three sh- ceramic shops in stars hollow and in the background the song that's playing is this is hell this is hell i'm sorry to tell you but my dear friend this is hell <laughs> and so i'm looking at this and i'm like oh no Oh,
1: no, I have a type. I have a type. Mm-hmm. And again, we kind of the kid from the city who moves to not the city is a character trope in its own. But this is certainly one of the perpetrators of it. And for him specifically to be from Jersey, which is great. Specifically
0: from Jersey. Well, and he's got a mouth on him, but it's also somehow charming.
1: He's got a mouth on him. He absolutely does not know how to communicate in a healthy manner to Super not. anybody, but especially the girl he likes. Like there are so many times where he just gets really like surly and ignores her and brushes her off. And she's like demanding and asking for basic common courtesy statements to explain his behavior. And he's just like running the opposite way and being like, that's fine. I'll catch you later.
0: Careful,
1: I knew you in high school. Yeah, well, I also knew your husband in high school.
0: You know what, Farrah, so
1: did I. You want to talk about Surly. Oh, Um, God. But I, I love, there's one scene where Danny is at the arcade and Elizabeth Shue is giving him the cold shoulder, and he's, like, genuinely trying to figure out why she's upset. And then Elizabeth Shue's best friend, like, tells Danny off and is like, you idiot. She loves you. She punched out Johnny for you. Like you're being such a dick right now. And we turned to each other and agreed that those two, Danny and Elizabeth Shue's best friend had infinitely more chemistry, like instantly.
0: Yeah. Because she actually like tells him off and talks to him and he and Elizabeth Shue have nothing in common they're just like okay we're gonna get together for reasons she stood he stood up for her yeah at the beach that's it
1: yeah he stood up for her that one time and like he's the new guy and apparently she's really into self-deprecation from the way that like the the big thing they try to do is the whole class thing and Oh, you're from the right side of the tracks, and I'm not, and your parents don't approve of me. Mm-hmm. Oh my God, that's what it is. Her parents don't approve of Danny. That's right. You didn't stick around for the uh, exciting conclusion. Oh, what was that? His hand on her wrist, her right hook. You think she sprained her wrist doing her nails?
0: Are you commenting on my surly jersey thing? The parents- No, no. <laughs> are you commenting on Pretty in Pink?
1: I'm commenting on Pretty in Pink.
0: Oh, I was like, Andy, that is really blue to bring up on our podcast. No,
1: Jesus. (laughs) Pretty in Pink, The Outsiders, All Shook Up. Like, My Parents Don't Approve From You, You're On the Wrong Side of the Tracks, is a whole teenage reason to fall in love. And I don't remember what happens in Karate Kid 2 and 3, but I'm sitting here realizing these two have like four years at most. She's going to go to an Ivy League college. Oh, for sure. He's going to like say that, oh, no, karate is my career. And they're going to peter out like you do.
0: Or at best, he goes to a state school. Yeah. Which like no problem. The California state school system is great. But I think that's just because it's California and all of the really, really rich, wealthy professors are like, oh, my God, you know where I want to teach? I want to teach in California where the weather's nice.
1: Well, and again, like they, they, they make it really clear that he is in a different financial class. Mm-hmm. Um Again, like, he he might go around winning karate championships. And I do know in Karate Kid 2, like, the whole thing is they go to Japan and it's the International Karate Championship and he wins it again. Um, That's terrible. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, but, like, I could see Danny going to Bayside Community College and, like, His real thing is he wants to run a dojo. And in fact, I think I know this from watching like previews and trailers. The canonical final fate for Danny LaRusso is he winds up being like a local car dealer celebrity. Like he's a successful car dealer and he shows up in commercials and he's like, come to LaRusso's Honda. And, like, that's what he does with his life.
0: I hate that so much. (laughs) Oh, I hate that so much. Well, (laughs) what a wasted opportunity. What a wasted. What a wasted use of Mr. Miyagi's time.
1: Yeah. I mean, I will say also, kind of the thing with Cobra Kai, my understanding is Johnny is the main character, Mm -hmm. and it's all about Johnny's, like, long-standing midlife crisis as he does run like a shitty karate dojo and he realizes like how unhappy he is and Danny LaRusso isn't even in season one of Cobra Kai he comes in in season two as an antagonistic force where it's like Johnny peaked in high school and now he's like a schlub running a karate dojo and Danny's the successful car dealer who, like, also his soul is dead on the inside.
0: Cool. So, like, (laughs) they just switched places?
1: I think that is supposed to be, like, the narrative irony.
0: Okay. But. All right. (laughs) I'll allow it.
1: Um, I want to talk, this movie does some weird things technically. Okay. I noticed it from the word go, the the very first scene is like them driving out of Jersey. And there's a bunch of neighborhood youths waving at their car who were actual Jersey neighborhood youths who like just wanted to be on a film set. And their director was like, sure, whatever, which that's pretty cool. Um, But we get like a four minute, completely unnecessary road trip montage. And the entire time there is this, aggressively loud, aggressively cheesy score playing. (laughs) We're like, there's very little going on. Like Danny and his mom are having like a conversation about how it sucks that they're moving. And the entire time there's just.
0: The credits, the credits are going on while they're doing that road trip.
1: Still completely unnecessary. In my opinion, (laughs) I I think, I think. Using the first three minutes of your movie to play the credits is something that deserved to die out, and I'm glad that it did. But the, the music in itself is so loud, like it's a mixing thing, because there are two kinds of scores going on. There's the moment where actual songs are being played in the background And it's like mixed properly and it's not overbearing and it's not super loud. It's just, it's doing what it's supposed to be. But then there are random times. It happens in the beginning of the movie. It happens again a little later where they're like, oh no, we need random ass filler music. And that is so much louder than anything else.
0: (laughs) I don't know. You're the best was pretty loud. Well... It might be because I was hearing it in surround sound. Because you start singing it, "You're the best," ah, and I was like,
1: "What is happening?" And that was like a very interesting, unrealized core generate, like core memory for me. <laughs> I forgot that this movie is where "You're the Best" comes from, and I don't even like that song that much but there was just some yeah it starts playing and like i don't miss a beat i just start singing along to you're the best around (laughs) and you look at me like you okay and i'm like i don't know what's happening to me right now
0: (laughs) there is a trend on tiktok how everyone knows all of the words to that one song about infidelity um swimming through your veins like a fish in the sea even if you don't know Mm -hmm. you know the words and your version is you're the best
1: yeah truly
0: you didn't know you knew it, but you do.
1: And I didn't know I like enjoyed it so much until like I'm seeing it while there's a montage of teenagers beating the shit out of each other at a state function. <laughs> and I was like, I go, I get it now.
0: Oh, I get it now. I have to I have to cheer during the violence
1: that's what it's there for, to get you pumped up as the uh, Asian-presenting teen is defeated by the blonde California white guy to get to the finals. That isn't a great moment.
0: That's, well, it makes sense if you tell me that movie two is another white boy who beat the other white boy who beat the Asian-American boy then goes to Japan and beats a bunch
1: of people. Beats the evil Japanese students who are who are trained by Mr. Miyagi's evil nemesis.
0: No, stop it. That's,
1: a, that's the thing that happens.
0: Okay, so then the franchise is racist, because I was going to say back when we were talking about Is This Racist? Part 1, is that another thing that really bothered me about the scene where he steals the black belt is like, that's the first morality moment that mm. we see of Mr. Miyagi sure. that isn't good. And it's to steal and to trick someone. And I'm like, oh, I don't know that I love that either.
1: That is sure. a very interesting point. Yeah.
0: Mm.
1: Well, also, he beats up a bunch of teenagers.
0: Yeah, but the teenagers deserve Sorry, my moral compass <laughs> is like, ah, at best. So the teenagers
1: deserved it. I'm not going to argue that they didn't, but, like, from a <laughs> from a moral perspective, I think oh, what we can agree on is Mr. Miyagi is pretty, like, morally flexible.
0: So he and I have a lot in common because we're both morally <laughs> flexible.
1: <laughs> yeah, just to read it. Danny accompanies his his mentor, Mr. Miyagi, to Miyagi's childhood home in Okinawa. Miyagi visits his dying father and confronts his old rival, while Daniel falls in love and inadvertently makes a rival of his own. Okay, so no, Elizabeth Shue doesn't even make it to the sequel.
0: (laughs) And are you noticing kind of a parallel here that every piece of problematic interaction that Danny has is because he falls in love with another hapless girl? Yeah. Who's just trying to, you know, do her best in life. Send a Now show me, wax on, wax off.
1: I really want to, like, give some sort of credit to Miyagi. I think it's great that he teaches Danny muscle memory. Sure, yeah. I think that's an objectively, like, that's actually really cool how that's the training thing. Mm Because, but, yeah, no, this movie does not hold up to, like, modern-day scrutiny. No. In just about any way.
0: No. But it should get some Oscars because apparently it didn't win any. It just was nominated for some. Yes,
1: Pat Morita was nominated. But on cult fiction, we firmly believe that every film, even the one that is, like, a childhood classic that it turns out is actually incredibly problematic and racist still deserves a few Oscars.
0: Still does.
1: So with that said, I would like to give the Oscar to The Karate Kid for most dated inspirational message. Sure. We've, it's been like the conversation we've been having the entire episode. This, this movie make such a big deal about like believe in yourself and persevere and, and don't let your circumstances define who you are. And like, that's great. And I understand how that's supposed to be inspirational. But then again, the crux of this movie is Danny refusing to follow medical advice to then like put his pride on the line.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: which we didn't even talk about. like the the 10 minutes, the 10 real life minutes that happens are Danny begs and pleads to be allowed to do something physically violent when he has already been deemed that he is like very hurt because toxic masculine pride, He has the fight with Johnny. Johnny, like, breaks his leg. Johnny does a thing where, like, it should have dislocated Danny's knee. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't because movie. Mm -hmm. And we need to, like, tie and we need stakes. And, oh, my God, Danny's pushing his body to the limit. Then Danny does the crane kick. Because, of course, he had to do the crane kick. That's why it's the most awesome karate move ever. Mm -hmm. But doing the crane kick means he has to land and put all of his body weight on his recently, again, should be dislocated leg. Danny should be crippled. (laughs) Danny should be, like, walking with a limp for the rest of his life. From that moment alone, just so he can kick an asshole in the face and say that he like did it and then look back at his mentor and Pat Morita smiling and then that's the end of the movie.
0: And that's my Oscar. Okay. Because, so, most sudden movie ending.
1: Most sudden.
0: But the first 15 minutes of Karate Kid 2 were supposed to be the last 15 minutes of Karate Kid 1. Really, in which Miyagi and Danny leave the doge- leave the competition, and someone comes up to Danny to like give him shit, and Mister Miyagi just honks his nose, and then they keep walking, <laughs> and that's supposed to be the end of the movie.
1: Oh my God, I had no idea.
0: Yeah, I only I only found it up because I was looking up why does Karate Kid, and what it auto-filled in was why does Karate Kid end so suddenly, and that is apparently the reason.
1: You know what? Okay.
0: So, that's why it ends so suddenly.
1: The only thing I had heard is they almost didn't put in that final shot of Pat and Rita smiling and nodding. It was it the there was a period of time where it was going to be Danny kicks Johnny in the face and then is carried away by the crowd and then cut to black.
0: And Danny and Johnny have their like, you're all right, man. You're all right. Moment.
1: Oh, well, yeah, they have that. But like literally the final shot of Pat Morita was added after the fact because like they needed to really highlight that like the point of this is their relationship
0: Which I am totally fine with. I love that. But also, most sudden movie ending.
1: Yeah. Fair enough. I get it.
0: So, you know who always ends in a positive way?
1: I was about to say who always ends suddenly, and I was going to be like, oh, that's a disparaging comment.
0: (laughs) I would never about (laughs) poor Mr. Kevin Bacon. (laughs) Do you want to do the honors since I could not figure it out?
1: I do. So I I chuckled to myself Riley, because I know that this movie can be done in a single connection. This movie has a direct connection to the great Kevin Bacon. And I told you this and you were like, how? I don't understand. I would like to talk about the career of one Elizabeth Shue who we have not who we have said like doesn't even isn't even in the sequels and elizabeth shue is in adventures in babysitting and this and like rides that wave as being one of the 80s it girls however elizabeth shue is in the hollow man with kevin bacon
0: well okay
1: <laughs> i concede
0: <laughs> And for two seconds, I thought I had it because I thought that Kevin Bacon was in The Outsiders because at that point...
1: Feels like he should be, right? Everyone
0: was in it. Yeah. Like Everyone who wasn't yet big was in The Outsiders. And so I was like, oh. And I thought I was being clever. And so I was like... So under my breath, I was going... Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
0: And then... I I, you know,
1: I I hear that and go, wait, Kevin Bacon wasn't in The Outsiders?
0: Yeah, I googled it.
1: Interesting. Okay. I know. No, it's 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 Elizabeth Shue who was like an 80s Inc girl. And the weirdest thing, just to just to point this out in here, Leah, Leah uh, Elizabeth Shue's credits are a movie called Somewhere Tomorrow, which I've never heard of, and then a Burger King commercial where the whole point is the Burger King commercial is Leah Thompson, Elizabeth Shue. And Sarah Michelle Gellar. <gasps> what? And then she's in Karate Kid, which like cements her as one of the '80s crush it girls.
0: Who is the girl who gets slowly out of the pool in the movie you're always talking about?
1: Oh, Phoebe Cates.
0: She must have been too busy filming a Carl's Jr. advertisement to <laughs> be in the Burger King commercial.
1: We recently talked off camera about how I consider Burger King to be the worst possible fast food choice. And so I support this oh, because right. uh, somebody of Phoebe Cates' stature would absolutely instead choose to advertise for the superior fast food uh, commercial Juan Carl's Jr. <laughs> Let's
0: just pick a movie, shall we?
1: Let's go ahead and pick another movie, because that's a thing that we do on every episode of Cult Fiction. We put our hands into the fate of the Hollywood crypt as applied through a random number generator, and it takes us through the decades, through classics, through, I would say, mostly cult movies, but apparently there might be a few in here who are objectively uncult, like Karate Kid. That said... We have 284 films to pick from. Uh, actually, 285 because fan of the show Jordan has requested we add Rust Stop. So we added Rust Stop, which I've never seen, but I've at least heard of Jamie Alexander. So we have 285 films. And next time on Cult Fiction, we are going to be watching number 95. And number 95 is a movie I have never heard of and I don't think either of us have seen. We are leaving the 80s and going to be watching For a Good Time Call. For a Good Time Call, I remember the trailer is about a pair of like college students who kind of fall backwards into running a phone sex line business to make money. I own it. Oh, you own it? Oh, okay. Did you add this? If you if you owned it, if you own it, then you've seen it clearly.
0: No. Oh, okay. For a good time, call is available on Hulu with a premium subscription.
1: Okay. I also see it's available on HBO Max and Amazon Prime Video. For- oh,
0: perfect. Well, that's all for this edition of Cult Fiction. If you want to keep up, you can follow us on Twitter at Cult Fiction Cast. You can also rate, review, and stream us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll close the crypt for now.
1: But join us next time as we uh, look into alternative income sources to make our ends meet for our expensive, expensive apartment. As we watch the 2012. I don't even know if this is a sex comedy or not. For a good time call, for Stephanie Johnson, I've been Annie Bowell.